everyone and welcome to episode 3 of Stalked. Um, thanks again for all the support and for everyone I know that has been listening and sharing it. Uh, it really does mean the world. Um, like I always say, I'm just trying to raise awareness of stalking as a crime and how different each type is and bring forward some of the rarer cases not covered by other podcasts or the press. So firstly, I just want to give a brief warning for this episode. It will involve some more disturbing aspects than the last two. I will be talking in some detail about things like rape and murder. So please please give this one a miss if you're likely to be upset or triggered by those topics. Um, I would also not recommend it suitable for anyone uh, under 18. Okay, so this week's episode will be largely focusing on the rarest and yet the most dangerous type of stalker, the predatory stalker. And as I mentioned in episode one, this is the kind of stalker that personally I find most frightening because most of the time they don't want their victims to notice them until they attack. The sole purpose of the predatory stalker is, is typically to stalk to collect information about the victim. They want to know where they live, they want to know if they live alone, what time of day they leave the house. Um, Not only this, but the predatory stalkers um, are apprehended, like when they're caught. It's very, very common for them to be married men. Oftentimes they'll have children. And for those who have known them in their personal life, they will normally be really shocked that that that's that person. Um, In short, it's not uncommon for them to be the last person you would expect to commit those sort of crimes. Uh, the end goal of the predatory stalker is typically some sort of sexual violence um, and because of this, this is the most common type of stalker to evolve onto serial murder. So I thought it would be useful before I um, get into today's main case, which is not a very well publicised one, to go over a really famous case of a predatory stalker who subsequently did evolve to become a serial killer. And this one has been all over the news and TV and other podcasts in the last year. So I'm going to quickly give an overview of uh, Joseph James D'Angelo, and I think that's how you pronounce his surname, who is, of course, the Golden State Killer, which many of you probably have heard of. So before D'Angelo became known as the Golden State Killer, he did have a few other nicknames given to him by the press. Um, He was called... Uh, like firstly, he was called the East Area Rapist and subsequently the original Night Stalker. And his crimes, uh, it, the crimes that he started with, would fit perfectly into the category of predatory stalking. He would follow women, he would determine where they lived, he would find out when they would be home and then he would break in and rape them. It is actually believed that before he became a predatory stalker, so before he became a rapist, he had a spree of burglaries and it is still considered that that he was also, he was known as the Vasilia, I think I've said that right, ransacker, which was a name given by the press to a, like a very common burglar that, burglar that they found um, at the time in that area, who was never apprehended, but it is now assumed that it was D'Angelo. I am just going to give a quick disclaimer here. I am absolutely atrocious at saying the word burglar or burglaries. I don't know why, I just always mix it up. So I really apologise for the amount of times I am likely to get that word wrong in this episode. 
Okay, but anyways, uh, so what I think is interesting about this case when you're looking at D'Angelo over a span of his crimes is that many people will see three separate crimes. So first he was a burglar, then he was a rapist, and then he became a serial murderer. So they see them as three separate things. But I think what actually is occurring is something I talk about often, um, and that's escalation. So I think it's often assumed that serial killers leave the house one night and commit their first murder with their entire MO in place already and everything they need understood and prepared and their toolkit ready. But it just doesn't happen like that. I don't actually believe that anyone wakes up with the intention of becoming a murderer. Um, unless you're a hitman and then, yes, probably you do. Um, but in all seriousness, I think what happens is this individual begins to need to perform such things as voyeurism, so spying on women through the windows or stealing underwear, for example, in order, uh, order to achieve sexual arousal. And when D'Angelo first was committing these crimes, when he was first breaking into people's houses, this is exactly what he did. He would often ignore high-ticket items like TVs, like cash, like jewellery, um, and instead he would take the contents of the woman's underwear drawer who lived in the house and he would just scatter it around and sometimes take some of the underwear. So in fact, I don't see this as a burglary at all. I see this as the first step in kind of the downward spiral or the escalation to become a predatory stalker, serial murderer. So while these individuals committing things like voyeurism or break-ins, uh, for some while will find satisfaction in those acts, the excitement and risk of being caught will provide them with the rush they need temporarily. But like any addiction, and I do think it's an addiction, uh, they will become tolerant to those effects and it will require escalation. So next will often be following the women then often it will be sexual violence, often rape, and then subsequently a lot of them will move on to murder um, and they will not stop unless they die or are apprehended. So I actually have a really great example in a film of a police profiler and a psychiatrist discussing this exact thing, the, the escalation and the learning and growing from previous crimes. So in the film Red Dragon, which I'm sure most of you will have heard of, um, profiler Will Graham is trying to catch a serial murderer named by the press as the Tooth Fairy and he visits Dr Hannibal Lecter so I don't want to give away too many spoilers in case you haven't seen this and you want to um, but basically he's trying to get his help trying to understand who uh, the identity of the Tooth Fairy um, while discussing the errors Will believes the Tooth Fairy has made on his last victim's house uh, Dr Hannibal Lecter offers some advice which I genuinely think is really spot on in terms of serial murderers, serial rapists and predatory stalkers. So Will says, I believe he meant to use bolt cutters to get into the house. Instead he broke in through the patio doors. The noise woke the victim and he had to shoot him on the stairs and that wasn't planned, it was sloppy. And Hannibal replies, we shouldn't judge him too harshly. Well, it was only his first time. And then later on, he, he says to him, I believe we are making progress. And that's what the Tooth Fairy is doing. He is refining his methods. He is evolving. So I think this is a great way of describing escalation, that like the escalation that I often refer to. Learning through past mistakes, what works and what doesn't, is, is, is how someone like D'Angelo goes 
I mean, he went for 40 years without being caught. A lot of crimes like predatory stalking or serial murder, um, murder sorry, involves trial and error. So, for instance, D'Angelo had to compile a toolkit to take with him because he found that many of the homes he broke into had dogs, which would obviously bark when he broke in. So he actually thought to go and get himself kind of, I mean, I've never seen it in the shops now, but I assume it was a thing then, something called dog repellent spray, um, which he would completely cover himself in and take with him to these houses. And this is a perfect example of him refining, of him evolving or escalating to fit into what he needs to do to commit the crime. So targeting lone women is also part of the trial and error. It's easier to control one person, obviously, than it is two or three. So a lot of the time, I think it's misunderstood why, for example, sex workers are so often the victims of serial murder. It's um, not often what the press think. Um, they think that the murderer has a grievance or a problem against sex workers. This is often what they'll put in, in the papers at times like this. Um, I think it's actually down to the practicality. So will that woman get into the car without a fuss? Will they willingly drive away somewhere quiet with them? And this is exactly why um, Ted Bundy was so successful. Because around the time that he was committing murders, it was commonplace to hitchhike. And therefore he had a much easier time of getting women into his car without a fuss. So thrown into the mix that he was obviously young, he was charming, he was considered good looking. Um, not to mention that through trial and error he had worked out that vulnerability was more likely to work, so crutches or wearing a cast, or he would go in the opposite direction and found that authority would work, so he had a fake um, police badge. And that's how I think Bundy killed as many women and girls as he did. It might also be interesting to know that Ted Bundy actually did begin as a predatory stalker, so it really, really isn't uncommon in serial murderers, um, murderers to begin as predatory stalkers. I will link uh, Red Dragon on my page, um, on my, my Instagram page, just in case anyone hasn't seen it and wants to. Um, also, if you haven't read the books, I would 100% recommend those. They, they are really, really great. Um, and also, if you've never seen Manhunter, which is the original Red Dragon um, a film that was released in 1986, which came out before Silence of the Lambs and starred Brian Cox as Annabel Lecter and um, CSI's William Peterson as Will Graham. I would urge you to watch that because it's an amazing film and it's so close to the book. Um, so I will pop that on my Instagram as well. So back to D'Angelo's case. From what is known, he committed burglaries for just over a year from 1974 to 1975. He then actually moved to Sacramento and began his escalation to rape in 1976. So you can see that the effects of breaking in, um, breaking and entry did not last long before he needed further stimuli is, is a way of putting it um so from 1976 to 1979 d'angelo committed and be aware that these are only recorded cases there may well be more but he committed 50 rapes i think one of the most frightening things again about this case is that after several attacks committed against lone women or, or women living with small children he would then start breaking into the homes where the woman was living with a partner so living with the husband and he would tie them up while he committed the rape 
And this is very unusual because typically in predatory stalking cases where the perpetrator is a man um, stalking and attacking women, which, which most of the time they are, they would normally be looking for a female living alone. Um, obviously, this is for ease of control over the victim. It's much easier to control one person. It limits it limits the risk of being caught by the police, like for someone calling the police, for instance, or being injured by a second party. So in terms of risk, this was certainly high and perhaps one of the reasons that he actually committed rapes without murder for as long as he did. I think that perhaps the additional risk um, was enough of an escalation for him. Things like this come down to control. And this is so evident in D'Angelo's actions, even in the fact that he would often um, get the women to tie up the husbands themselves. You know, before he raped them, he would ask them to tie up their husbands and, and have them in the same room. And this is pure control and the enjoyment and exerting power over and over other people. I think he probably found the humiliation of the men incredibly exciting too. Um, I know there was one particularly horrible event in which at a town meeting so so when this was all happening and nobody had any idea who it was and um, they had a town meeting discussing the crimes um and unknown to anyone else um because he was ident unidentified sorry for years and years and years but D'Angelo was present at this town meeting and one man had, had stood up and basically said, how how can anyone let this happen to their wives sort of thing? How can you, you put up with this? Why don't you fight him? Basically, within weeks of this, D'Angelo broke into that man's house and raped his wife in front of him. So I do think humiliation over other men was probably part of his escalation, which is why he committed um, rapes without murder for so long. So I, I think I mentioned this in episode one as well um, when I discussed the predatory stalker. But most of D'Angelo's victims um, reported that prior to the break-in and the rape, they had seen somebody prowling in their gardens or the house may have been broken into but nothing was taken, things were just moved. Um, so I think in episode one I also mentioned a TV show called The Fall, which is a British-Irish TV show. Um and I just wanted to recap on that again and give the details on um, the episode in which this sort of behaviour is captured, like, perfectly. So obviously, for anyone that hasn't seen it, I won't give too many spoilers, but perhaps you'd rather skip ahead um, anyways. If you skip ahead about three minutes, that should be fine. Okay, so Jamie Dorman um, plays serial killer Paul Spector. And obviously by this point he has escalated to murder. But I think um, I think they mentioned in episode one that he was a rapist before that. So again, that sounds to me definitely um, like a predatory stalking, uh, stalker sorry, escalating to uh, serial murder. The thing that I like, um, that I think they get so well in this series, is the way in which um, Paul Spector stalks and taunts his victims before the crime. So as I said, most predatory stalkers um, don't tend to let themselves be known to the victim before the attack. But as I said, it's also in their nature to escalate. And, you know, yeah, they can get cocky. If they have gone on so long without being caught, if they've gone months and even years, they might start to do things to let the victim know that something is coming. Um, Again, as a way of escalation, as a way of getting more excitement out of the scenario. Um, 
not scenario, sorry, situation. So I won't give away too many spoilers, but I think prior to the first murder, um, we see Paul Spector break into the victim's home. So he has already selected his victim, which again is classic predatory stalker. He breaks into her home and he moves item, items of underwear around. I think he, he lays a set of underwear on the bed. It's something like that. He also eats something from a fridge, which again, is it's so common for a predatory stalker after committing the, the attack, after committing the rape. And I think um, D'Angelo did this as well. It's not uncommon for them to go and eat something in the kitchen or I think D'Angelo went and had beer quite a lot and would just sit in the house and stay, just sit there and eat or drink something for five minutes. Um. So yeah, Paul Spector, I think he, he eats an orange. It's something really strange. It's something like an orange and he leaves the peel on the bench. So these these things might seem so insignificant that he sets underwear out on the bed and he eats an orange and leaves the peel on the bench. But you have to think about the psychological effect on the victim to come home and and see these things. So to a police officer, not aware of, of what these things could mean, they would just say um, like a break-in in which nothing had been stolen. So it's a very low-level crime in their eyes. Um when in fact, I think this kind of break-in is incredibly serious and I think something like underwear being moved, something like no, you know, no high-ticket items being stolen, um, I think it should be taken really seriously. I think the victim should be moved out of the house for a few days. Um, this is almost like the, the you know, the, the stalker or the killer leaving like a black spot for the victim, essentially. Um, if you don't know what a black spot is <laughs> um for some lighter viewing i recommend you go and watch muppet treasure island because that it's like a pirate thing it's like a, a warning a warning card that you're about to be murdered but um yeah go and watch muppet's treasure island because that's an amazing film but yeah um basically the fall is a really really great series um that captures predatory stalk and that has escalated to murder which is just what D'Angelo did in 1979 when he began escalating to murdering his uh, rape victims. I'm not going to go into the murders because this case has been extensively covered on other podcasts, on TV documentaries. Um, if you didn't know, D'Angelo um, was not actually identified and arrested until 2018. So if you aren't aware of this case and are interested in learning more... Um, I'll, I would definitely suggest you, you read the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark, um, which I'll link on my Instagram. Or if you would prefer a podcast, I know that My Favourite Murder actually covered this case. I think they, they did an early episode on it and then they actually did an episode, a, a few episodes I think, while it was happening. Um, so I will link those also. Okay, so the other case I wanted to discuss today is one that is definitely less well known than The Golden State Killer. And again, just as most cases of stalkers being apprehended, I believe that that is because he thankfully did not have the opportunity to escalate to murder. Um, although his crimes were still horrendous and spanned over a decade. So today we'll be discussing Delroy Grant, also known by the press as the Minstead Rapist or as the UK Night Stalker. So this case will be a little shorter than usual, um, just due to the limited amount of information available on it. But Grant really is a perfect example of a predatory stalker. 
So Grant began his crimes from what can be seen in October 1992. And this is the first reported case of rape. But as I mentioned before, I would not be surprised if Grant had engaged in voyeurism or break-ins without rape prior to this first reported incident. Unusually, the next reported case that was tied to him wasn't until 1997, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't active. He might have moved out of the area and been operating in another area, or his victims might just not have reported the crimes. Grant was fairly active until 1999, so a two-year span. But in 1999, one of his victims' injuries was so severe that she almost died. And this is one of the worst things about this particular case for me. And that's um, that Grant only targeted elderly women who lived alone. So obviously we don't know the reason that he did that. But I think the most likely reason um, is that this meant that they were easier to dominate and control. Um, however, this unfortunately means that because they were elderly, a lot of the times they're weaker they are more likely to be susceptible to the injuries. Um, so after this victim was almost killed in 1999, Grant did appear to stop for some time. Again, we don't really know what happened in, in, these, in these short breaks. It might have been, like I said, that he moved. He might have still been active and the victims just weren't reporting the crimes. But in 2002, another attack was reported, followed by a consistent streak throughout the summer of 2003 which again was followed by a break. So although many believe that Grant did stop throughout these breaks, I'm just not sure. Um, in serial murder, there is a belief that they go through um, a phase during which they prepare for and then kill the victim, after which comes the cooling off period. So the way I see serial killers, um, which I mentioned earlier, is that they are addicts, they are addicted to this, and the cooling off period is a time in which they are satisfied um, by the memory of the crime. Uh, so the, during this time, they might revisit the body if they have kept the body somewhere, um, or this is the reason that they take trophies. That's to try and recreate the high that they got during the murder, but obviously at home. Um, but the high wears off, um, and ultimately, the cycle will start again. One of the trademarks of a serial killer, because despite what a lot of people think, a serial killer isn't somebody that's just killed a lot of people. There's a lot of different types of, of murderers, and a serial killer is just one particular type. And one of the trademarks that they have to have is this cooling off period. And it has to get shorter and shorter. So the high lasts for less and less and the serial killer must escalate into their addiction by essentially killing the next victim sooner and sooner each cycle. And I believe this pattern is no different in predatory stalkers committing rapes or sexual assaults. I think the cooling off period is the same and I believe they do not stop attacking and raping um, until, until they either escalate to murder or caught by the police or die or you know something like ending up in prison in the case of grant the periods in which he has no obvious crimes no reported crimes it could be for a, vari a variety of reasons um so like i mentioned before did he just move to a different area did his work take him away somewhere um th there's not much known about what he did for a job um was he arrested and put in prison for something else you know was he caught for something else 
Or did his victims just not come forward during those supposed periods of inactivity? We just don't know, unfortunately, in this one. Um, whatever the case, Grant's crimes continued up until 2009. So in total, it is believed that he raped and, and burgled more than 90 elderly women. And bear in mind that there will likely be many that were unreported, that people that just didn't come forward. So this number could be even higher. Um, the police used a lot of geographical profile in this case to essentially close in on Grant. I think it's not uncommon, as odd as it may seem, um, for rapists to have conversations with their victims afterwards. Like I said before, they'll often sit and have something to eat. They'll often have a drink. They often have conversations. I know with one victim, I think Grant even was very nice to her afterwards and kissed her goodbye. So... Is as strange as that seems, it's it's really common. Um and Grant did he had he had several conversations that his victim victims reported. Um and for him unfortunately this was a huge not unfortunately because he was caught, but for him it was a huge error in judgment because one of the things police used to close in on his location was the fact that to several victims he'd mentioned that he had to go to Bristol later that day or later that week. So they used a, a technique in geographical profiling which is called distance decay function by which they were able to determine the area that he lived in, um, the area that he worked in and they could even, they, they thought that he even pinpointed the area that he had grown up in. So it's a very accurate um, method of profiling um, and the method was successful and in November 2009 Grant was arrested and subsequently charged with 22 counts of sexual violence and burglary. So almost two years later, 54-year-old Delroy Grant stood trial at the Old Bailey and was found guilty on all counts. He was given a life sentence with the recommendation that he should serve 27 years before being eligible for parole, meaning that at the first opportunity of parole, Grant will be 81 years old. So as of 2020, Delroy Grant is currently still incarcerated in prison. Um, I don't have a, a, an accurate location for him because I think he is put in kind of a secure unit and I think he's been moved around quite a bit and the, the location is kept confidential and that's because he has um, allegedly received a lot of threats of violence and death made by other prisoners which really isn't uncommon in rape cases. As of 2020, 72-year-old Joseph D'Angelo is currently detained in, Cal in a California prison and he is still awaiting trial. He is only going to be trialled for over half of his crimes because, believe it or not, um, in America they have something called statute of limitations, which means a crime um, runs out, basically. Um, the, the, the amount of time you can be uh, tried for that crime runs out. And um, in California there is still a statute of limitations on rape. Um, I think his trial date is rumoured to be happening later this year. And that's all the information that I have on those cases today. Um, but before I go, I have a quick uh, movie recommendation. This this one is a predatory stalker that has escalated to become a serial killer, so similar to the Golden State Killer. Um, but it is a really great example of the stalking of the victim that takes place before before the crime. The way that they track them and the tools they use and the way and just in which they organise things. It's, it's really great. Um, a really great portrayal of it. 
Um, it's also a brilliant example of how it is often the last person that people would expect. So this um, film is called The Clove Hitch Killer. I think it came out in 2018 and it stars Dylan McDermott and Charlie Plummer. I think it's currently available for free if you have Sky or Now TV, but I will put a link for it on my Instagram. And that's um, everything this week. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Um, as always, if you have any questions or corrections for things I may have gotten wrong um, for this episode, you can contact me via my Instagram, which is at Stalked Podcast. Plus, all of the films and books I've mentioned will be up there and I will be back next Sunday with a new case. Mm-hmm.